So well, welcome to Calvary Church, and we're continuing in our Advent series this morning, and we're going to be looking at the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's printed for you, the passage, in your worship folder, if you'd like to follow along there. But before we begin that, um, the book of the month that I put in news and notes this week is Abide in Christ by Andrew Murray. And as you can see, actually, this is not a new copy. This is a very old one that I had to dig out of the bookshelves. But I remember reading this book when I first became a believer many, many years ago. It's a wonderful book, Abide in Christ. It's about intimacy with the Lord, and I'd really encourage you to read it. It's one of those books that's a 31-day type, you know what I mean? So it's got 31 chapters, and it's a little longer than most of the 31-day books, but it's very, very much worth it. In fact, it's something that you could do with, for yourself. You know, the new year is coming. Maybe this would be a good project for you in January. Maybe your small group that you're a part of is looking for something to study together. Well, this would be an excellent book to study because it's all about that main scripture passage where Jesus talks about abiding in him. Maybe you're not in a group. Well, that's great. You can start one. It's really easy. You just go ask a couple people, hey, would you like to get together and for 31 uh, weeks or whatever you want to do, we're going to read this book together and we're going to pray together. It's a wonderful thing to do. And it's also, I picked this book because it fits perfectly with what we're talking about today. And that's about having a personal relationship with the Lord. You know, there are a lot of doctrines that are very important in the Christian faith. And of course, the most important doctrine, as Martin Luther the Reformer said, is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which, he said, the church stands or falls. You either get justification correct or you don't. And the doctrine of justification <coughs> is about God declaring us righteous before him based upon the work of Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself in our place, suffering the holy wrath of God and bringing to us forgiveness of sins. Based upon the perfect life that Jesus lived, that none of us lived, that none of us could ever live, and that righteousness, that alien righteousness, that foreign righteousness would be applied to us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. That's the status of justification that is ours when we're in union with Christ. But that's the church, that's the doctrine upon which the church will fall or stand. There's another doctrine that we're talking about this morning. <clears throat> it's perhaps the most surprising doctrine of all. And that's the doctrine of adoption. Adoption. You see, our holy God is so awesome that he has given to us eternal life in Christ. He's given to us a vision of Jesus because we couldn't see who he really was in our flesh, but by having our eyes opened and enlightened, we can see him. He's given us an eternal salvation. He's working sanctification in our life every single day, perfecting us in holiness. That's overwhelming enough. And then on top of all of that, he says we can be a part of his family. Did you know God has a family? We could be called children of God in a relationship with him at an intimate level. That's almost too much 
to handle or conceive. And if you really want to feel it, read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans, chapter 8 especially. Because in the midst of those discussions by the Apostle Paul on the purity of the doctrine of justification, adoption just stands out like, can you believe it? We are actually children of God, and we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's what we're talking about <coughs> this morning, this privilege. And there's so many other things that come under the adoption doctrine, like being able to relate to God as Father, to relate to God where He actually loves us. We know that He cares for us, that He forgives us, that He trains us, that He understands our life, that He gives good gifts. Under the doctrine of adoption, we could put the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within our lives and His leading, His power, His empowerment so that we can serve the gifts that He gives to us. The Spirit causes us to grow in grace. We could also put under the doctrine of adoption the inheritance that we have in heaven because you only inherit something if you're a son or daughter of someone. And there's an inheritance in heaven awaiting the children of God who are united to Christ, the true Son, and is ours to enjoy forever. Under the doctrine of adoption, <coughs> we could put that we're part of the larger family of God with all of the saints of all of the ages, all of true believers, a great fellowship. And that's just the beginning. The list could be expanded and expanded and expanded. There's so much scripture about the doctrine of adoption. And the only thing this morning that I really need to think about is that this doctrine is all about one thing. It's about relationship. It's about having a personal relationship with God. And our Apostle John opens up this topic at the very beginning of his gospel as part of his prologue, and he's going to be developing this throughout the book of John. We're not studying the book of John, but you have the book of John, so you can study the book of John, and you can read ahead, and you can learn more and more about this on your own. But the key passage, of course, is verses 12 and 13, where it says, but to all who received him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the privilege to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So please turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to verse 6 of the first chapter. Let me read it to you. It says, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. Now, this is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. It's not the Apostle John who wrote the book, just so you know there are two different Johns here. But there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, a real relationship with God is only possible through Jesus Christ, 
And that's what we learned this morning. That's the message of the Apostle John. Believe in the true light. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will enjoy a privileged, personal relationship with God. Would you like that? Just prior to the entrance of the Word into the world, if you back up and you just glance at your first paragraph, it talks all about the Word, and we know who the Word is. It's Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son. And just prior to His entrance into the world, God sends a witness. That's John the Baptist. John was only a lamp of preparation, we learn in verses 6 to 8, but in verses 9 to 13, we see that Jesus is the one who is the true light who is shining for all. The prologue of John's gospel all the way through verse 18 speaks of the excellency of Jesus, the word of God, his incarnation, all for the glory of God's grace toward the world. Last week we learned that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the creator of all things. And it's our prayer and hope that from our study this Advent season in the gospel of John that two things will happen to us, or rather will do two things, so that God's power is at work more in our lives, and that is, is that we apprehend more of the glory of Jesus Christ. And to apprehend means it takes time to think. That means you're not done with the sermon when you leave today. That means you take it home, you open your Bibles, you re-preach to yourself what is here. You think about it so you can apprehend the glory of Christ, and then you delight all the more in who Jesus is, and you do that through prayer. That's how that happens. That's how it works. So today, the message is to believe in the true light, Jesus Christ, and enjoy this personal relationship with him. And so let's take a closer look at our passage this morning. First of all, John the baptizer was sent as a lamp of preparation. That's what he was. He's the first witness we read in verses 6 through 7. And there's a disclaimer that's given about him in verse 8. But in verses 6 and 7, we read, There was a man sent from John, God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, the narrative about John the baptizer doesn't actually come into play until verse 19. So if you glance ahead, verse 19, then we start reading about this ministry of this guy, John the baptizer. Now, he is very important in the storyline of Jesus Christ. It's not just sort of there to skip over to get to the Jesus part. No, he's very, very important in the storyline because he's the first open, clear witness to who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. I mentioned to you last week that part of the organization of the Gospel of John is there are seven witnesses, and that's how it begins. He's the first witness to who Jesus is. The second is Jesus himself and his works. The third is Moses and the scriptures. The fourth is the Father. The fifth is the Spirit. The sixth is the disciples. And the seventh is the author himself. The other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, discuss in greater detail the multifaceted ministry of this John the baptizer. And Luke gives us perhaps the most background on him. But in the Apostle John's account, which is what we're looking at this morning and we will for a couple weeks, John the baptizer is discussed very narrowly. The only thing that seems to be important is that he's the last and greatest of the prophets who would introduce us and have this unique ministry of introducing us to the Messiah who would be the Word become flesh. He's not the center of attention, but appeared to establish 
the truth of the full identity of who Jesus Christ was. You notice already there are major distinctions that are made, even in verse 6, between these two, between John and between Jesus. You see, John literally came into being, but Jesus always was. John was a man only, but Jesus was also God. John was sent from God, but Jesus was with God. John came to bear witness about the light, namely the word that is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, this one who gives life and light to the world, as we already read in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's declarations would be clear later on in chapter 1, where it would say, John would say to people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And later on in John chapter 10, the people would remember the ministry of John the Baptist, and it's recorded that they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man, Jesus, was true. John's hope was and is from heaven today that all would believe through his witness. You know, this is the first passage in the Gospel of John of about 100 times in the Gospel of John where the word believe is used. What do you think the book's about? That's, that is three times more than all the other three Gospels combined. Believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life is the major purpose of this gospel. He closes it in John chapter 20. This account was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing that Jesus is here and believing in Jesus is a definitive act in this passage of relational trust in him. Have you believed in him? Not if someone were to ask you if you believed in Jesus, you say, well, yeah, sort of. It's not answering the question by saying, well, yeah, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. It's not by answering the question, it's like, yeah, I go to church on Sundays and I give money. I take care of poor people and sick people. That's not believing in Jesus may be wonderful things. Well, then we get to the disclaimer. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. There's, no, there's a couple ways you can read this as disclaimer. First of all, it could be simply a strong contrast between the two, meant to focus our attention on Jesus all the more. And that's what we'll observe as the narrative begins in verse 19. Their ministries would overlap. You know, John would be doing his, his revival ministry and his baptizing when Jesus would begin his ministry and disciples would start realizing, well, Jesus is the true light. And they would go to him. And you would think that John the baptizer, because if he's anything like you and me, would be very jealous. But he said, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Perhaps the best lesson ever to be learned 
from John the Baptist. And it's constantly instructive to us on who do we point people to. Do we point people to ourselves because we think that we're such great Christians? Or we point people to our neighbor who we think is such a great Christian? Or we point people to our church because we think we're such a great church? No, we must decrease and he must increase. We point people to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus would discuss this later on in his ministry in John chapter 5. He was a burning and shining lamp, Jesus said about John. And he said, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I give you is greater than that of John. So in other words, if you're a true disciple of John, then you'll leave John. And you will become a true disciple of mine. John was just a lamp of preparation. Just like Jesus said, John the baptizer should make it really easier for all of us to believe in Jesus Christ. That's why he was sent from God as a witness for the world's sake, not only then, at the time of Christ coming into the world, but ever since, even now. And as the greatest and last prophet, with the unique privilege of introducing the Savior, we can also learn from him a lesson, as I've already mentioned very directly, that we are to subordinate everything about our life to Jesus Christ. Every single thing and aspect. Because we want Jesus to shine and to be the one who increases, not ourselves. You know, people follow John and they would like to follow John, and there's a danger because they could stay distant from Jesus, but close enough to Jesus. Although it wasn't John's intention, because he was very clear about pointing people to Jesus. But you know, there's always that temptation, and you can read about it for yourself in the Gospels, to focus and delight too much in related good things, but not Jesus. It's really easy to look spiritual and to look strong by talking about tangential matters to the gospel, but not talking about the gospel. Very easy. It was really easy in John the baptizer's time because he's leading this revival. Do you remember some of the things that he preached about? He preached about repentance. Oh, he was not a very nice guy to many, many people who were self-righteous. He talked about politics. He would accuse people in positions of authority, of immorality. He spoke very positively. He even rejected false repenters who came out and wanted to do the act of baptism. John the Baptist was a very, very powerful person. But, you know, all those things were side issues. They weren't the real issue. The real issue was believing in Jesus. You know, what might it be for you? There are so many good things to talk about, related topics to the gospel, but not the gospel itself. Have you found yourself or ever found yourself, or maybe it's this season, this Christmas season, 
where you're finding yourself not focusing enough upon Jesus, but you're allowing yourself to drift. Well, come closer. Believe in the true light. Believe in Jesus Christ and enjoy a privileged relationship with him. That's what the Apostle John wants us to do. Now, after John the Baptizer's ministry is in full swing, then comes Jesus. And Jesus is the true light shining for all. And here we get to the centerpiece of the prologue and the climax in verses 12 and 13 that we've read for you. But we'll see in verses 9 and 11 that there's a great, the greatest tragedy of all. But in verses 12 to 13, there's the opportunity for the greatest privilege of all. The greatest tragedy in verses 9 through 11 occurs when we read that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 9 announces this momentous occasion of the incarnation, the coming into the world of the true light, the Word, God himself. The creator would come into the creation. This one is none other than the true light, meaning that there's no one like him. There's no one comparable. He is the genuine one. He's the final one. He is the definitive light. He's not just some other foretaste of some other prophet. He's not another lamp like John the Baptist. He's not just another prophet. He's the light himself. He's the Messiah. Of the Old Testament promise, Jesus would fulfill all the meaning and all the hope of that word. He's the eternal source of spiritual, true spiritual light for all of us. And our passage tells us that he enlightens everyone. Now, he could still be talking about, in the John, the apostle here, could still be talking about how ever since creation, prior to his incarnation, that he was actively involved in his creation, revealing, communicating, saving these types of things, anticipating the incarnation that would come soon enough. But it seems best as we read this prologue and go along that our, our thoughts are focused directly on the incarnation, enlightening everyone since then. And so he speaks here, it seems, about directly the incarnation. When he comes, he enlightens everyone. And we have to determine exactly what is John, our apostle, saying here. And he enlightens everyone. There are two different ways we can take this. One is it's, he's talking about an internal enlightenment. The other way to take it is that he's talking about an external enlightenment that he shines upon things. So those who take the understanding that he's talking about how he enlightens everyone internally, there are three more options, okay? Most people speak about general revelation in the sense that people's sense of God gets heightened by the very coming of the Son of God into the world. One option. Second option is others would be more specific. They're talking about life, spiritual life actually being given. So it's a true enlightenment in the soul unto salvation to a true intimate knowing of God. That's another option. If you think he's talking about enlightening from an internal perspective. The third option is not an option. 
But the third option would be somehow people think that this is a universalist statement. That somehow when Jesus comes into the world, that he would save every single person on the planet. Not true. We're not universalists. It doesn't fit the gospel. You have to believe in Jesus. There's no other way. So it's much better to understand here that this enlightenment in verse 9 is talking about the external enlightenment. When Jesus came into the world, the light shone. It was turned on. And he's shining upon everyone, Jew, Gentile, requiring a response from everyone, from the whole world, universal in scope, and that everyone who reads this gospel should have to answer the question, what do you make of Jesus? Now that he's come, as we move forward in John's gospel in John chapter 3, this becomes very, very evident, this interpretation. In John 3, 16 and following in the paragraph we read, our apostle writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then we get to verse 10. And we read here, He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He would be coming into the world in an amazing way to come and be with his creation being among his creation, among sinful humanity even. He was in the world. And some think that this is a reference to how he was in the world before his incarnation, just being a part of what he's doing, of course, and upholding everything by the word of his power. But we know that at this point, as we're reading the prologue, our, our thoughts are directed directly to the incarnation. And so when we read that he was in the world, we jump down to verse 14 and we see that he dwelt among us. You know, Jesus didn't come to this world for some kind of a quick sanitized visit from AD 29 to 33. He lived life like you and me. He was born here. And he lived that life. How dark it is that the creator of the world would come to the world that he created and the, and the world would not receive him as Luke wrote so eloquently with multiple levels of meaning. There was no room for him in the end. It's not just that people didn't recognize him as some kind of an intellectual failure on their part, it's because they willfully rejected him. They refused to believe in him. They were hostile, without gratitude. This was not just the response of people then, but it's characteristic of people even today in our state of sinfulness. It's a solemn, ironic 
tragic situation, a great tragedy that people don't believe in Jesus Christ. It would take a miracle to overcome the hardness of human hearts and the spiritual darkness to be able to turn a blind man into one who can see. In verse 11, it says literally, he came to his own things in the original language. He came to his own things, and then his own people didn't even receive him. He came to his own property, his creation. And then even more astonishingly, more ironic, more tragic, is that his chosen people from history, the glorious covenant history, Israel, rejected him as the Messiah. The people who should have been the most welcoming of all, the people who said they were looking, obviously were not. They rejected the Messiah. This is the greatest tragedy of all. And in contrast to this tragedy comes the greatest privilege of all in verses 12 and 13, where he says, but to all who received him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, in contrast to most of the world, and their thoughts and their lives and their actions, we receive and believe in his name, we become a child of God. This belief means more than intellectual consent. It means more than being satisfied with Christian answers to problems. Oh, those are requirements. You have to believe intellectually. But that's not enough. You have to trustingly abandon your soul on Jesus. That's what it means to believe in him, in the person of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he's the eternal son of God and nothing less. And you have to believe in his work on the cross in its fullness and yield yourself to be possessed by him. Picking up on chapter 1, verse 7, where we see that belief is a decisive act that all might believe through him. Here the emphasis in our passage is on continual faith and both are required. We get to this phrase, those who believed in his name. That phrase, in his name, is simply a circumlocution for God. In other words, it's another way of just saying God. And it brings us back into the history of redemption when God revealed his name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, well, what's his name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am. Yahweh has sent you. That's his name. Yahweh. So this phrase, in his name, simply means in God, the true and only God. Now, with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, we now know that Yahweh is triune, that he is a trinity, and that he has to be received specifically the way he has revealed himself in Jesus. That's the fullest self-revelation of God that we have, is Jesus Christ our God. 
There's no other way to be saved. Because Jesus Christ has to specifically receive the glory. You can't use any other name. You can't make up some other name or substitute some other God there. You couldn't even do it under the Old Testament anyway. Yahweh didn't want you to try to praise him by using a calf or by using the name of some fake God of some other people group. It's the same today. You can't be saved unless you believe in Jesus Christ, and you must name the name. It'll be clear enough throughout the gospel, Jesus Christ must be the conscious focus of all saving faith. Believers under Jesus are given the right to become children of God. Right can be a very misleading term in our society because we're a society built on rights. As if we could just somehow take it or claim it as ours. No, a much better translation of the original language would be authorization. You're now authorized. Or legitimate claim would be a better translation. Or honor, the honor to become a child of God. Or as I read it to you earlier, my preference is the translation privilege. We have the privilege to be called the sons and daughters of God. A new status. And to become a child of God means that before believing in Jesus, you were not a child of God. People are not naturally children of God. That's false. People aren't born as God's children. The people who John's writing to, and in the original context, being Jewish does not make you God's child. You have to believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to become a child of God. One pastor scholar made the point referencing this particular thing I'm talking about, and it has much more application than just beyond the Jewish people at the time. But he said and wrote, they had continually in their mouth the nobleness of their lineage, as if because they were descended from a holy stock, that they were somehow naturally holy. It's not true. No human being is naturally holy at all. Those who show their self-righteousness by repealing to their heritage or associations. That's what he's talking about here. Oh, and it's not just those people. Because people today do the same thing. Religious, self-righteous people. They appeal to their religious activities that somehow that makes them holy. They appeal to the purity of their doctrinal statements and how it's so much purer than those people over there. Religious hypocrites and self-righteous people who think that they can claim, I was raised in a Christian family, therefore I'm getting into heaven, and I must be a Christian. People who say that they go to church, or I've even had people show me their baptism certificate as if that's going to get you into heaven. What are you going to do? 
stuff it in your coat pocket and your coffin and show it to St. Peter at the gates? People think that they're Christians because they hang out with Christians. People think that they're children of God because they do things in God's name. It's not what our passage says. The text says that this privileged, intimate relationship with God on a personal level comes from believing in Jesus. The Apostle John would write letters later on, and in 1 John 5, he would write, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He would also write in that same letter in chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You know, you'll know if you have a personal relationship with God and intimacy, because you know how that works in the human realm. You know if you have a relationship with somebody, and if it's intimate. And if you don't feel like you have a personal relationship with God, you probably don't. But you know, our passage today tells you exactly how you can have a personal relationship with God. And any of us who were up here this morning, we would love to talk to you about what it is to have a personal relationship with, Jesus, through, with God through Jesus Christ. So there are three expressions that are used here describing how you don't become a Christian, how you don't become a child of God naturally, because that's natural human religion. Is natural human religion is that somehow in ourselves, we can make ourselves right with God. And so there are three phrases here, not of bloods, plural, not of bloods, meaning lineage, descent, born of a woman. In other words, you could just say you can't be born a Christian. Next phrase, not of the will of flesh, talking about sexual desire and passion. In other words, we could translate it this way, you can't be born a Christian. Third phrase, not of the will of man, which means deciding to have a baby. We could translate it this way, you can't be born a Christian. Are you getting the point? Three times the Apostle John writes the same thing. You can't be born a Christian. You have to be born again. You have to be born from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how we come into this family-type relationship. It's a supernatural thing that God works. And the order of salvation is straightforward in our passage. That God has to regenerate us. Then comes our faith, and then comes our adoption. These are the three items that are being discussed here. And verse 12 talks about this latter part of becoming a member of the family of God. And that faith is what leads into that adoption, while verse 13 backs up to the very beginning of the requirements. It's not something that naturally happens. It's something that God has to do in our life. God builds his own family, and it's truly a miracle to be born again. More is going to be discussed in chapter 3 when Jesus actually discusses the topic. But you can glance ahead. In John chapter 3, verse 3 and following, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, Jesus is the true light shining for all. He's shining in your midst. He's shining upon you today. So what do you make of Jesus? What's your response? Do you believe in Jesus? Is he God? Is he your Savior? I hope your story is not part of the greatest tragedy, but that your story is a part of the greatest privilege to believe in the true light, Jesus Christ, and to enjoy a privileged relationship with God. You know, at the very end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, he says these words to Mary. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And again, we hear the adoption language, being a part of the family of God through Jesus. The apostle purposefully brackets his whole gospel with this language. So with our focus upon adoption into the family of God, and these verses, especially verses 12 to 13, I want to read to you one of the main paragraphs of adoption in the New Testament. And there's so much more. But in Romans 8, 14, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit internally. See, you know it if it's true. And he bears witness that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so I want to recommend to you yet again that book that I mentioned, Abide in Christ, because it's all about relationship with him. Remember John's purpose? It's to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that people would believe in him for eternal life. We began in verses 1 to 5, and he told us that the Word is our Lord and God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who existed eternally, the creator of all things, And he's been communicating ever since. In our passage today, we learned that John the baptizer was only a lamp of preparation, but Jesus is the true light that shines upon all, and if we believe in him, we can enjoy a privileged relationship. Well, next week, we'll look at verses 14 to 18, the conclusion to the prologue, and we'll see this light shining. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So may our purposes in John's gospel be fulfilled, that we apprehend more of the Christ, more of Christ Jesus. And I pray that we would all take more time this season to think about these things that we read in the scriptures. 
and not just so quickly read them, and to delight in them through prayer and drive them deeper into your own soul. And that's what we're going to be doing now here in a moment. It's very providential that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper here this morning because one of the other themes that this meal proclaims is this privilege of actually having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So at this time, if those who are serving with me would please come forward, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. <laughs> 